Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, it's Wednesday, the Ben, well he's at a nursery, the pot of Yorkshire, well that's already been drunk, and today well, obviously we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties, and to the football of its time. Welcome to the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast, today we're on episode 36, and today we're going to be looking at FA Cup semi-finals, your favourite FA Cup semi-finals, your memories of the FA Cup semi-final as a whole from the 2000s, a little bit before and a little bit beyond as well. We're going to take a look at the Sheffield United West Ham saga, that quirky little rivalry from Premier League history. We went to Bundesliga and to the 2005-06 season for the table never lies and much more else. Whilst I've got you here, please give us a five-star review. It bumps up the algorithms, gives us a few more viewers, a few more listeners and helps us create a lot more content, a bit like this and more going forward. Follow, subscribe, podcast feed, we're on Acast, Spotify, iTunes, do they still call it iTunes? Apple, either way. Every Wednesday we've noticed Nostalgia Podcast in the summer. We've got a few more things, but that's a secret for another day. Since it's FA Cup semi-final, in a few weeks' time we may as well uh, take a look at the FA Cup semi-finals of the 2000s and we've got a few memories here of the FA Cup semi-finals from our wonderful listeners over there on Twitter at whatif underscore YouTube. So start with me. My, my greatest FA Cup semi-final memories are my favourite FA Cup semi-finals. Fall either side of the 2000s, there's one right smack bang in the middle, so we may as well start with that one. Manchester United, Arsenal, Villa Park. No, it's not that one. It, 2004, Paul Scholes scored the only goal. It was a tetchy affair, as these games often were. This came after the Battle of Old Trafford, Mark II, after the famous one in 1990, where both teams got docked points, etc. But this one... In September 2003, that was uh, that helped the Invincibles kickstart their Invincible titles run. And we're here in April, a few months after that. Arsenal were on the verge of crashing out of both cup competitions. They'd lose to Chelsea in the Champions League. And here they are in a semi-final. Their only semi-final they would get to, uh, apart from the 
League Cup semi-final against Middlesbrough, which they, of course, again lost in January. This one, again, they lost. Only goal, Paul Scholes. Manchester United beating the Invincibles. The only team that Man that Arsenal didn't beat apart from Portsmouth that season. And Man United was across two competitions. Portsmouth was just in the Premier League. Where they drew, obviously, home and away. Backtrack a few years, five years, outside of the noughties. So it's it's a shame there. But Man United, Arsenal, Villa Park, again, of course. The first, well, it wasn't a leg, but the first game, there was nothing about it. There was The only point of interest was a Roy Keane disallowed goal, which it was in those days of interfering with play and then a second phase of play, but you'd still be offside. I think that's what David Ellery gave offside for. I still don't, I'm not at 100% because it's a, in today's money, it, even with VAR, it'd be a goal. It'd be 1-0 and we'd be robbed of probably the best cup game um, in English football history. You might say the the White Horse final, the 53 final has more folklore behind it. There's the Ricky Villa win against Manchester City for Tottenham. There's a few cup games like that that are etched into the memories of English football fans. The 76 win for Southampton against United, the 73 win for Sunderland against Leeds. There's quite a lot gone down the years. 87 Coventry against Tottenham, that 3-2 win for them. But in the semi-finals, Manchester United versus Arsenal, the best two teams in the league, in the country, fighting on the uh, on two fronts there for the league that go right down to the final day, as we know. And the semi-final, inches away from going away from Manchester United and to North London. Ryan Giggs, we all know, scored that fantastic goal. But before that, we've got Beckham with one of the best goals if it hadn't have been for Ryan Giggs, it would be the goal of perhaps the season in England. But obviously, you've got Dennis Bergkamp scoring the equaliser and Dennis Bergkamp having the chance to take Arsenal into another final to meet Newcastle again like they did in 98. They'd win that, of course, but they wouldn't have the chance to play Newcastle again in the semi-final. Schmeichel would save it. He'd close line players out of the way to get amount of counter-attack. But then in extra time, Ryan Giggs came on. He's been rested Came on and absolutely destroyed Arsenal. Vieira gave him the ball on the halfway line. He bobbed and weaved and kept going, as Andy Gray famously said in the Sky Sports commentary. And obviously it was a wonderful run from Giggs. Again, another line from commentary there, Martin Tyler. Packers it into the top of the net. And for me, that's my favourite goal of all time. You've got the gravity of the situation. FA Cup semi-final going to penalties potentially. Obviously that helped then kickstart the give the treble season a little boost. You had the fourth round earlier on in the season with Man United beating Liverpool with two late, late goals at Old Trafford. Potentially, if it went to a replay at Anfield, Liverpool would beat Man United. Obviously, the league game was 2-2. This would come a few weeks after this game. And um, then, obviously, Man United go on to win the final. They beat Newcastle 2-0. The second step on the part of that famous treble. And... A game not featuring Manchester United, not in the 2000s. One of my favourite FA Cup semi-finals is Hull City 5, Sheffield United 3. And for a time in the first half, it was 2-1 to Sheffield United. At the time, they were a League One team. Obviously, roles reversed for this season, with Hull being the League One team. But we, we were so close to having a, a third-tier team in the final for the very, very first time. Let's go on. We are, we are memories of the FA Cup semi-final. Harry Holland, friend of the show, writes in, as do quite a few of us, Arsenal won, Sheffield United 3, Sheffield United nil from 2003, sorry. We'll get on to Sheffield United later on and where we're covering them, of course, in their rise back to promotion in the Premier League in the 2000s. 
but all I have to say is Dave Seaman's save, and we'll uh, we'll talk about it in depth a lot later on. Harry also says Bolton nil, Stoke five from twenty eleven, which Stoke and Bolton were two cult teams. Bolton were probably on the way down; they would go down in a few years' time, maybe the year after this. Actually, um, Stoke were on the way up. Stoke were probably favourites. It was it was a tight game. It was probably the, it was the weaker of the two semi-finals with the, obviously the Manchester derby the previous day I think um, but nobody saw foresaw a 5-0 you've got Matty Everington pagrin in from distance Robert Hoof's half volley from a similar distance a few moments later on and Stoke was suddenly 2-0 you give Kev, Kenwin Jones through on goal who's fed through on goal and the game was pretty much over inside 30 minutes Stoke 3-0 up and then John Walters good old John bagging twice in the second half taking it to 5-0 and uh yeah, it was quite the shock. I mean, probably one of the biggest FA Cup semi-final wins, maybe the biggest. We'll talk about another one later on. Uh, a Chelsea win from the following season. Martin McDonald, good friend of the show again, um, he talks about Liverpool beating Chelsea at Old Trafford and says they must have played each other fifteen times at least between two thousand four and two thousand six. So I ran the, I ran the numbers and close, close. In 2004, they played each other twice in the Premier League. In 2005, they had two Premier League matches. A League Cup final where um, Chelsea, of course, won after extra time. You've got the two Champions League semi-finals, the 0-0 at Stamford Bridge, the 1-0 and the goal from the moon in the second leg. And you've got the added two group stage matches. We've obviously Liverpool not been exempt from the national pairings, obviously winning the tournament, but not qualifying by their league position in 2004-05 season, which we spoke of last week. Go check that out in the uh, in the archives for this podcast. And then you've got in 2006, two Premier League ties, FA Cup and the Community Shield, which brings it to a total of 14. And then between 2007-2009, the next uh, sort of three-year period, we had another 13 games. So in in the space of six years or five years really, 2004 to 2009, they played each other 27 times, which is just ridiculous. Anyway, to the game, Chelsea were probably favourites given their uh, cup history. Obviously, on Europe, it's a completely different vibe with Liverpool, really. They just go to an extra gear. They find an extra gear in their little gearbox in the centre console. But at home, Chelsea had beaten Liverpool in the League Cup final, of course. And then you've got John Arisa curling in a cheeky free kick at Old Trafford. Luis Garcia with a phenomenal lob. Much better than his goal in the Champions League semi-final. And Liverpool gone to win 2-1. Obviously went on to win the trophy with uh, one of the best performances in cup final history. Steven Gerrard scoring that fantastic 90th minute winner. Alex Rhodes, good friend of the show, says Ryan Giggs 99 has to be up there as well. I- AFC Finn has, uh, he's got a great YouTube channel. Big shout out to him. Check him out on YouTube there. He says, why did literally the best semi-final in history have to be one year before the noughties? Of course, alluding to... Arsenal Man United in 1999. Joseph Kiffin agrees with Harry Holland there. The David Seaman save of 2003, which is the best way to sum up that game, really, in spite of Arsenal being probably one of the best teams in England at that point. Obviously, they were English champions. They'd gone to win the FA Cup again, so two years in a row. But all people can talk about is how good Sheffield United were and how good David Seaman's save was. Probably the best save I've ever seen live Gordon Banks in 1970 might top that might have something to say about that and uh, but yeah that it was a fantastic save Joseph Kiffin big Liverpool fan he says uh, I remember Liverpool versus Everton 2012 for the Andy Carroll winner so we were returning to the 80s almost for a 
for a brief day in North London with a Merseyside dominance. It was an all-Mersey FA Cup tie at Wembley, like the good old days of 86-89 in those finals. Nikita Jelovic, he opened the scoring, but Luis Suarez equalised. Andy Carroll netting a late winner, which continued really Liverpool's good cup form that season. They wouldn't win a domestic cup double. They'd uh, beaten Cardiff in the League Cup final in that February. And Andy Carroll, he thought he'd got the equaliser in the final as well. But that, again, probably this pair check save on a par with Dave Seaman in 2003, Gordon Banks in 1970. I still don't know how it didn't go in. Andy Carroll bullets a header on the back post. Petacek tips it onto the bar and yeah, I haven't got an absolute foggiest how that stayed out. Obviously Chelsea going to win the FA Cup, go on to win the Champions League a few weeks later as well. And both teams there sort of underperforming in the league, but when it came to cup competitions, sort of won all of them. So between them, so George HS2706, big Chelsea fan. His wildest memories were Chelsea beating Arsenal 2-1 in 2009. And again, going back to big Big wins, Chelsea 5, Tottenham 1 in 2012. And speaking of good cup teams, Chelsea in 2012 were another one. They absolutely battered Spurs 5-1. Jermaine Genus probably thought Spurs were the better team in that one. <laughs> and you've got goals from Didier Dropa, Juan Mata, Ramirez, Frank Lampard and Florent Malouda. Ramirez opening the scoring in the final as well. Drogba continuing his ridiculous semi-final and final form. He was When he got to the Millennium Stadium or... When he got to Wembley, he just became a completely different player. Also see the 2012 Champions League final a few weeks later. Scores the equaliser, obviously. Scores the penalty. And another Didier Drogba goal in a semi-final or final. 2009, scoring the late winner in 2009 against Arsenal in a 2-1 win. Alex Ferguson was in attendance there prior to Manchester United's match against Everton the following day in the semi-final, which we'll talk of later on as well. And then from the, even though Theo Walcott scored early on, Fergie knew that Chelsea would win. The pitch at that time at Wembley was bordering on a disgrace to say it was the uh, the national team pitch and stadium and so much money had gone into Wembley that they couldn't even fork out for a half-decent bit of turf. Joe, big Arsenal fan, uh, we're covering all bases in terms of the top clubs here. He says that he went to the semi-final against Wigan for Arsenal. Per Mertesacker saving Arsene Wenger's job, for better or worse. So, Per, Ma- per Mertesacker equalised Jordi Gomez's penalty. Arsenal picking off Wigan on penalties. And Wigan would have repeated, perhaps, Arsenal's feat from 01 and 02 in uh, winning the Cup in successive years. Obviously, Chelsea in 2009-2010 as well. The whole was to play in the final, as we've uh, spoken of, in that 5-3 win. And that would have been something, really. Uh, Wenger would, of course, go on to win the FA Cup in 2014, 2015 and 2017, bowing out of football management. Lelouch, continuing the theme of the whistle-stop tour of big supporting big clubs there, Man United fan, also references the Giggs 99 semi-final against Arsenal, the 2004 semi-final against Arsenal and a bit more recently, the 2016 semi-final against Everton and 2016 for me was a bit of a welcome break for United the FA Cup had become a bit of a priority because they hadn't won it since 2004. Anthony Martial's late winner confirming that final. It marked a good season, but Louis van Gaal got sacked instantly. Obviously, they finished fifth, which meant, obviously, the Europa League, which they then gone to win in 2017, to be fair, but he was sacked later on that day, which was... It wasn't the right way to do it at all, and he deserved a better send-off, i.e. Wenger in 2017, if he was to... Uh, if he needed to be sacked at all, that is. And finally, ended it on uh, Jake Collinson. He says, I know which FA Cup semi-final isn't my favourite and 
got a slight inkling to which one he's alluding to there. Sunderland nil, Millwall one from 2004. Sunderland had history as a second tier team in the FA Cup. They'd obviously got to the final in 1973 and beat the best team in the land in that final against Leeds. They got to the final in 92 as well, but that was on a, a losing occasion against Liverpool. They were one game away from playing the English champions in the final of 2004, but they blew it. They absolutely bottled it. And Tim Cahill's winner for Millwall at Old Trafford meant that they were the first team, obviously, since Sunderland from 1992 to get to the final from the second tier. And only Cardiff, four years later, have done it since. And needless to say, both Cardiff and Millwall lost. Millwall losing to three, losing to Manchester United 3-0 at Cardiff there. Some more best of the rest in terms of 2000s in the FA Cup semi-final. You've got Aston Villa beating Bolton on penalties in 2000. Their first FA Cup final since 1957. They would, of course, lose it to Chelsea. Dion Dublin getting the all-important penalty there. But he wouldn't get to go up to the stairs to the Royal Box to collect the trophy at the end of it. That's a shocking Holmes under the hammer illusion there. 2001, you've got two great stories. You've got Arsenal and Spurs battling it out for the FA Cup final. Notable for swaying Sol Campbell's decision to move to Arsenal instead of uh, remaining at Spurs, where we, he would have remained trophyless for a lot of his career. And you've got, in the other side, Wickham Wanderers, the Roy Essendor story, C-Fax beating Leicester in the quarterfinals, and then shutting out Liverpool for almost 85 minutes, I think it was. But And obviously Robbie Fowler, Emil Heskey, and they would eventually lose 2-1. And again, like Sheffield United in 2014, they would have become the first third-tier team to get to the FA Cup final. And to round things off, another Manchester United game, 2009, but this time it was a shock, Everton ending a treble push. Obviously, United would only end up with one trophy. Out of those three, they'd win the League Cup, of course, early on in the season, and they'd only win the Premier League with Barcelona beating them in the final of the Champions League that year, and Everton beating Manchester United on penalties. You've got that Dimitar Berbatov soft penalty, you've got Anderson blazing it, and Ferguson picked a, sh- a weaker team compared to uh, the league and the Champions League because he was still going full throttle against Liverpool. Perhaps if they wouldn't have lost 4-1 to Liverpool and lost 3-0 to Fulham, they might have fielded a stronger team because the league would have been beyond Liverpool's sight. But as it were, Everton ended a treble push and then, despite Luis Aha scoring one of the earliest FA Cup final goals in history... Chelsea would, of course, roll back because it was Chelsea. It was the late 2000s and they were just winning the FA Cup all the time. After this short, short break, we will be remaining in England and looking at one of the quirkiest rivalries of the Premier League era in Sheffield United and West Ham. And we have to start when we're talking about Sheffield United and West Ham in Sheffield United's long way to return to the Premier League. They've been in the top flight since 1990 after successive promotions from Tier 3. They had a comfortable season, first time round in the top flight, finishing 13th. They'd opened 91-92, the last old first division season, with one win from 12, but suddenly a magnificent rejuvenation, a double over Forest, and more importantly though, a double over Wednesday in the Steel City derby. Probably Sheffield, easily Sheffield United's biggest rival in comparison to West Ham anyway. They won at Stamford Bridge, they won at Goodison, they won at White Hart Lane, they won at the Dell. And one win from the opening 12 became 11 wins from the final 18 after New Year's Day. They finished in ninth, an improvement of 11 points, their best finish since 1975, and a far cry from the season a decade prior, for their only season in the fourth tier, as it were. 
That performance from 91-92 meant a lot for the Blades. It meant they'd enter the newly fangled Premier League. They had the privilege of opening that Premier League season up and they also had the privilege of having the goal scorer, the very first goal scorer in Premier League history, which of course, Brian Dean. And Brian Dean would score a double that day, meaning he's the first player to score at Brace in the Premier League as well, beating Manchester United. With 52 points in a 22-team league, the Blades needed good form at the end of the season to sort of pull away from their relegation zone. They'd beat the likes of United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Everton, Spurs. Sort of the five of the big six in those days with Everton, Spurs, Liverpool, United and obviously Arsenal would uh, make up that as well. A late winner, late winter form grounded the Blades in uh, in a relegation mire. A big Yorkshire derby win at home to Leeds led into four without a win. And then you've got the final week of the season, which was vital. You got wins at Forest, at Everton. And then putting four beyond Chelsea in a 4-2 win meant they'd survive. Obviously, a few years later down the line, or next year rather, a game against Chelsea rather summed up their season like it would here. This time though, they'd finish 14th with 52 points, with 20th to 22nd going down. Palace in 20th, the final, uh, the highest relegation spot, they had 49 points. So it was still, still in the balance really, going into that final week. The following season... Sheffield United, they beat Norwich 1-0. They won 2-0 at home to Newcastle and a point at Oldham had dredged them out of the relegation zone. So going into the final day, they were at Le- they were at Chelsea and five teams went into the final day looking over their shoulder. Southampton had 42 like Sheffield United. They had an away trip to London like Sheffield United. West Ham, Southampton, Southampton had to go to whilst the Blazers were at Chelsea as previously discussed. Ipswich were at Blackburn. Blackburn, who by this point were flying high, they'd finished second Ipswich also on 42 points. And in the relegation zone, you've got Everton on 41 with arguably the easiest fixture of Wimbledon at home. Oldham were still in the fight, but they needed quite a lot of results to go their way and they had Norwich away, who was still fairly decent in these uh, times. Swindon with 30 were down and with uh, record goals against Colm as well at that. Oldham needed a win, but they could only get a 1-1 draw at Carrow Road. They led for a while, but they were down. Ipswich held second place Blackburn to a goalless draw and Southampton scored three times but shipped a last-minute own goal at Upton Park to draw 3-3. They were both looking over their shoulder for results at the bridge and at Goodison Park. Wimbledon, well, they led early on, but Graeme Stewart with his double and Barry Horn drew them level. Chelsea, though, had had to do some work to uh, put Sheffield United away. They pegged them back twice and both teams going into the final 10 minutes were at 2-2. Everton 2-2 against Wimbledon, Chelsea 2-2 against Sheffield United. So with four teams drawing and Southampton winning, it was almost as you were before the day. Then Graham Stewart got that goal, that famous goal that meant Everton was safe. Wimbledon didn't get the point. This meant that Ipswich were down on goal difference. Chelsea were 14th. They didn't need a goal. They were safe as out. But they scored one anyway. 90th minute Mark Stein, 3-2 for Chelsea, which sent Sheffield United down. Dave Bassett stayed on as Sheffield United manager. They finished 8th in Division 1, three places off a playoff, and Bassett would leave halfway through the following season with Howard Kendall getting the job. Kendall hadn't had a top-tier job since Everton in 93, but still it was a coup. Ninth became 5th and two draws against Ipswich meant an away goals victory in the playoffs for the Blades. Andy Walker, as he had done all season, their top goalscorer for 96-97, got the equaliser and it meant the Blades were off to Wembley, but it would be a stalemate with Crystal Palace, a stalemate up until the 90th minute. The game was going to extra time until David Hopkin looked to curl one goal. Palace went up 
avenging their own last-minute playoff final heartbreak against Leicester from 96. Kendall would leave. Nigel Spackman came in, but he resigned in March over uh, over transfer dealings that went above his head, so Brian Dean sailed to Benfica for one. The Blades, they would win four matches until the end of the season under numerous caretakers, but win a playoff spot by the skin of their teeth, only to bow out to Sunderland in the semi-finals. Sunderland, who looked for all the world to be going up, obviously they would... Uh, they were losing that magnificent player final against Charlton 4-4 and on penalties. Steve Bruce took the uh, Bramall Lane job, but he couldn't take them up. Resigned and complained about transfer funds. Some things stay the same, some things change. Adrian Heath took charge, but he quickly resigned in November. So with this slew of revolving door of managers coming in, then you enter Neil Warnock. He propelled them up to 10th after steering them away from relegation. Six points off the playoffs. They made a great documentary out of it as well. And uh, they finished 13th in 2002. But by the end of the 2002-03 season, Warnock had built a cult team. Rob Kozluk, Rob Page, Michael Brown, Carla Saba, Paul Pesky-Solido, Nick Montgomery, Peter Enlovu, Phil Jagielka, Michael Tong, Paddy Kenny. They'd reached the semi-finals of the League Cup, beating Liverpool in leg one but losing back at Anfield. Liverpool would have gone to beat Manchester United in the League Cup final that year in Cardiff. And as we've spoken of, they got to the semi-final against Arsenal. They peppered Arsenal's goal, but ultimately, the Dave Seaman save, they lost 1-0. And they reached the playoff semi-finals. The first leg they'd drawn in Nottingham 1-1, and the return leg at Bramall Lane was an instant classic. Sheffield United were missing chance after chance, and Forrest raced into a 2-0 lead, and it looked like the Blades were out of a third semi-final in a row that season. Then you've got Michael Brown's free kick, you've got Steve Cabber, with a volley to rival Paul Gascoigne's Euro 96 goal. Phil Jagielka doing the dirty business at the back with one of the tackles of the season, as Chris Kamara puts in commentary. But the Blades still needed a goal to go through, and they had until extra time to get it under the bizarre away goals rule that they'd only come into action in extra time, which was just weird. And then Paul Pesky Solido scored a superb third on 83 minutes, twisting in and out. The Blades were through. An own goal four from Des Walker sealed Forrest's fate and the Blades. Whilst Forrest would get a consolation, but Sheffield United went to Wemb- went to Cardiff rather for three. It seemed as though they were fated to go up. They'd been one of the best teams, most entertaining teams of the season. But then they met Wolves at Cardiff. Wolves won three 0 They'd go up. They'd instantly come back down. Sheffield United, meanwhile, finished eighth, then eighth, and then finally in two thousand six, automatic promotion. Warnock, who had got Notts County promoted to the top tier in nineteen ninety one, in successive promotions, he was finally back in the big time. He also, on his CV, he'd have Huddersfield promoted to Tier 2 in 95, Plymouth to Tier 3 in 96. He'd also won the conference with Scarborough in 1987, let's not forget. So this was a sixth promotion on his CV. Even then, Neil Warnock, for me, in the Premier League, he seemed like a bit of a novelty. He was too exciting, this chance to pass up, really. His sharp-tongued honesty was a welcome break in a Premier League that was already increasingly sanitised for me. Sheffield United, though, they weren't there to make up the numbers. They were almost getting another famous opening weekend win, but a point at Liverpool at home, it was a decent enough base to start on. The first win came at home to Middlesbrough, second at St James's Park, and of course that famous Phil Jackie Elker in net game against Arsenal, that 1-0 win at Bramall Lane to close out 2006. And with that, the Blades were in 14th place. They'd notoriously do quite well against the London team, securing wins against Fulham and Spurs. They thrashed West Ham 3-0 in mid-April, which we'll get on to later. A match that, with five games left, the Blades were out of the relegation zone. They'd been out of the drop zone for the majority, 
but towards the end of the season, after one point from five matches, slipped back in. And another win a fortnight later against already down Watford helped Sheffield United to 15th place. And in terms of the rivalry between Sheffield United and West Ham, in terms of the rivalry, it wasn't felt on the pitch between the two. West Ham won at Upton Park 1-0 in November and Sheffield United got the return win 3-0 in South Yorkshire. But let's not forget about the Hammers in this situation. They had their own rescue mission from the EFL. They'd yo-yo up to the Premier League in time for the 93-94 season, the second Premier League season. Billy Bonds took them up to the top flight and solidified them ahead of the 94-95 season. Harry Redknapp almost returned to Bournemouth. He was the assistant to Bonds, but Bonds left, he was sacked, and Redknapp took his job. Redknapp signing Don Hutchison, bringing back Tony Cotty, and Julian Dix came in, and they continued their sort of mid-tableness. 14th became 10th, and the peak behind the curtain of their academy was seen. Frank Lampard was given a debut, Rio Ferdinand was given a debut, and later on down the line, at the ter- close to the turn of the century, you'd have Jermaine Defoe, Glenn Johnson, Joe Cole, Michael Carrick, they'd all be seen soon. The heights of Redknapp's time at Upton Park was 5th in 1999, UEFA Cup final, UEFA Cup football rather, the likes of Paolo Wanchop, Freddie Canute, Mark Vivian Foes, Shaka Hislop, most of all, Paolo Di Canio. So you've got the blending of an academy team with a bit of a foreign feel as the... From 1994 onwards, really, the Premier League was becoming a lot more like continental football, trying to keep up with the likes of La Liga and, more importantly, Serie A. Redknapp and West Ham, though, they'd lose Ferdinand to Leeds, £18 million to become the most expensive defender. They'd lose Frank Lampard to Chelsea. And in 2001, the summer of 2001, Redknapp was gone, replaced by Glenn Rhoda. Rhoda returned them to the top seven, but he had to cede control of the club to Trevor Brookin in the final days of the 2002-03 season, Rhoda, who would collapse after a win against Middlesbrough and a brain tumour revealed itself um, in the last game of the season. West Ham needed a huge goal swing to save them, but it didn't materialise. And soon the likes of Cole, Carrick, Defoe, Johnson, who we spoke of, joined Lampard and Ferdinand in leaving. Alan Pardew came in, having to deal with that fire sale. They'd almost come up, but Crystal Palace, prolific in the playoffs as they are, beat them in Cardiff 1-0. But West Ham would be more successful the following season's final, winning 1-0 thanks to Bobby Zamora against Preston North End. They would have a superb first season back, to be fair. 10th and a cup final lost by the barest of margins penalties, Stephen Gerrard. West Ham continued their 26-year wait for that trophy. That summer, though, the likes of Carlton Cole, John Pantsel, Louis Beaumarte, Lucas Neal, Matty Upson, Lee Bowyer, and obviously the two names that stand out from this Transfer window, Javier Mascherano, Carlos Tevez. Mascherano would only play seven games for the Hammers before moving to Liverpool in January. Tevez, however, he would have quite a different time at Upton Park, something that Blades fans count the cost of today. Perhaps. It came to light that the signs of Mascherano and Tevez broke third-party ownership rules. West Ham had bought the players' rights from MSI and were the only club to reach their high demands so to speak. West Ham and Tevez, they weren't having a great time of it by the pa- by the time that Pardew and Mascherano had left. Tevez had left in a tantrum after a Hammers win over the Blade in November, but the fresh face of Alan Kerbishley coming in over Christmas, Tevez started to uh, get some games under his belt and start hitting some form. His first goal came in a 4-3 loss against Spurs, and the following month, West Ham were fined £5.5 Instead of banning Tevez from uh, from playing for breaking the 
third third party ownership rules, he was allowed to play. And so the the Friday prior to West Ham's trip to Wigan, a crucial relegation six pointer, the Premier League made this decision. They were wrong to play him, but they're still allowed to play him. He was cleared to play despite breaking the rules. So say I'm a Premier League footballer. Someone's charging down the wing. I, I was a left back back in my junior football days. First name on the team sheet, obviously. But uh, say the, the uh, right wing is running towards me and I just two-foot him. I'm breaking the rules. I get a red card. I'm suspended. I can't just show up the next game and get a run out, can I? And a win would draw West Ham level the following day with Wigan on 35 points. You've got Bo Marte, Benayoun, Harewood getting the goals in a 3-0 win. The goal difference deficit was at five now. The points were level. Meanwhile, this was the same weekend that Sheffield United beat Watford 1-0. They climbed above Fulham and Fulham were the uh, the buffer with two teams to, two games to go. And if anybody at this stage had a gripe over Carlos Tevez's continued participation, it might have been uh, Wigan Athletic because they were in the drops or getting closer and closer to the drop zone. But Saturday, May the 5th, was a crucial day in the relegation running. Fulham claimed their survival with an unlikely 1-0 win over Liverpool through Clint Dempsey. Meanwhile, Sheffield United played Villa in the late kickoff that day and their, their players and the fans had to watch with bated breath to see what would go on at Wigan and at West Ham in the 3pm kickoff. You've got Mark Vaduka scoring a win for Middlesbrough at Wigan in a 1-0 win for the North East, North East club. And meanwhile, West Ham were beating Bolton 3-1. Gary Speed getting the consolation for Bolton. Meanwhile, Carlos Tevez got two goals, Mark Noble the other. Bolton were left reeling with Sam Allardyce's resignation the week previous and the heads had gone. He'd, he realised he couldn't get them to Champions League football and he'd reached a ceiling. And obviously that pesky Tevez grabbing two when he shouldn't have even been playing. I was going to say arguably, but it's, there's no arguably about it. Is the, it gifted West Ham the first comfort in a long, long time of being above the dotted line going into the final game. Borough's win at the JJB plunged Wigan into the relegation zone. And it would have been all the way plunging them to 19th had Charlton not lost to Spurs on the Monday night football. They lost there for Charlton relegating them. They joined Watford in the championship and 16th to 18th were separated by three points. Luckily though for the neutral, there were no mad goal swings needed as in West Ham's attempt at survival in 2003. Sheffield United were on minus 22 West Ham on minus 25, both on 38 points. But Wigan's 3-0 defeat at West Ham, crucially, left the ticks on minus 23. And with West Ham having a tough match at Manchester United, it was a blessing in disguise for the Hammers as the following day after their win over Bolton, Chelsea's point at the Emirates secured the Premier League title for Manchester United after that Manchester derby win on the Saturday the 5th lunchtime. It meant that United were in procession mode and it meant that they were an easier target on the final day. All eyes, though, were on Bramall Lane going into the final day. 16th, Sheffield United, met 18th, Wigan Athletic. The goal difference didn't matter. There was one goal in it. It was a simple case for a win for Wigan, they stay up. A point for Sheffield United, Wigan go down, West Ham survive. At this point in the saga, Tevez had earned West Ham four points on simply goals alone. So if we take that into consideration... The Premier League table will be as follows going into the final day. Sheffield United on 38, Wigan on 35 and West Ham on 34. So Sheffield United will be safe. Wigan would still need that win against Sheffield United. But West Ham would need a win and favours from Sheffield United. We'd still have one hell of a survival Sunday, but... First half stoppage time, that's where all the crucial goals came. Paul Shiner and John Stead traded goals in South Yorkshire. 
meaning it was 1-1 going into the stroke of half-time. Carlos Tevez added another three points onto West Ham's tally, scoring the winning goal at Old Trafford. And later on in that first half stoppage time, a former West Ham alum stepped up to the spot for a penalty. David Unsworth, who, let's not forget, was signed by Neil Warnock and Sheffield United in August 2007, 2005, sorry, and let go in January 2007 for Wigan. Now he had the responsibility of scoring the penalty to send the blades down and keep his own club up. He scored. It was his only goal for Wigan in 10 matches for the club in his final ever Premier League match. And what a way to go out it was. Wigan won 2-1, West Ham won 1-0. It left the closest relegation fight we've ever had. Ultimately, one goal separated Wigan and Sheffield United. And you look back to the thrashings of 4-0 and 3-0 that the Blades took at Emirates or Anfield or Stamford Bridge, or more pertinently perhaps, Villa Park, where they lost 3-0, where a point would have saved them on the penultimate match day. Or you perhaps you look to Wigan's 4-0 route at home to Man City and if they'd have won by a lesser margin. Or perhaps you look to Jonathan Spector's own goal for Wigan as a West Ham United player in December 06, which made a 1-0 a 2-0 win. Lelouch says that Sheffield United were robbed and I tend to agree. The blame laid at the doorstep of Tevez quite rightly earned West Ham six points in terms of goals. Sheffield United angled for a points deduction but received a £20 million compensation fee from West Ham. Compensation that wouldn't cure the failure to return to the top flight. It wouldn't cure the playoff final defeat in 2009 to Burnley, the fall to the third tier in 2011, the playoff final defeat to Huddersfield in 2012, missing out to Yeovil in 2013 semi-final or Swindon in 2015 semi-final. It wouldn't end the six-year void of Sheffield United's time in League One, which was finally cured by Chris Wilder and two promotions in three seasons, which meant that Sheffield United were back in the big time, but they're going back down this season as it stands. Whilst West Ham almost were relegated last season, results since uh, that fateful survival Sunday have been shared. Two wins apiece and a draw in what is definitely one of football in England's quirkiest football rivalries. After this short break, we'll be leaving England to the comfortable British shores and we'll be going to the Bundesliga because the table never lies and we're going all the way back to 2005-06. Welcome back. It's the Bundesliga. It's 2005-06. So, since we're in audio form, I'll read you the table as the Bundesliga stood this time 15 years ago today. Bayern led the league on 66 points, as was to be expected, as they do currently. Hamburg trailed by 7 points, which means it's the exact same difference between Bayern and Leipzig as I speak these words to you today. Bremen rounded off the Champions League spots with 56 points. Meanwhile, in the other European spots, you've got Schalke on 52, Hertha Berlin on 40, Leverkusen on 38, Dortmund and Gladbach slightly outside the European spots on 37, Stuttgart not far behind on 36, a gaggle of teams on 34, Hanover, Nuremberg, Armenia, Bielefeld. And then you've got Frankfurt, Wolfsburg, Mainz. Above the dotted line with Kaiserslautern, slightly below it, but within touching distance. Then you've got a bit of a jump to Duisburg on 22 points and FC Köln on 20 points. And obviously we have to start with the inevitability of Bayern Munich. We've charted their first two downfalls in terms of league successes in the 21st century in the table never lies on previous episodes but Bayern 
ultimately retained their title here. And despite the five points lead over Werder Bremen in second, it was sealed relatively comfortably, let's say. There was a nine point lead over Hamburg, 12 point lead over Bremen going into April Fool's Day. Bottom of the table, table Köln would, were to come at the Allianz Arena, a newly built Allianz Arena. It was uh, Bayern's first season at the new stadium. You got Roy Mackay and Willy Sagnall having to peg back Köln twice in a 2 2 draw. There seemed to be no ramifications for the, the dropping in points here, despite Hamburg's 2 0 win at Schalke the following day, or even Werder Bremen's 1-0 win at Frankfurt. But then, Bremen tonked Bayern 3-0, two late goals killing Bayern in that one, but the gap was still seven points from Bremen, four points from Hamburg. Bremen drifted the following weekend with a 1-1 draw at Wolfsburg. Meanwhile, Hamburg kept the heat on by beating Duisburg 2-0, as Bayern won at home to Bielefeld. Crucially, though, was the afternoon of April the 22nd. Bremen and Bayern played the following day and ground could be made up for Bremen against Bayern. Hamburg choked at home, losing to the serial chokers of German football in Leverkusen 2-0. Bayern didn't totally close the door on the title race, however. They found themselves two goals down at Mainz. Roy Mackay scoring a double to extend their lead at the top to five points. Hamburg carried the fight a week later as they won at Köln via an early own goal, something which Bayern couldn't do a few weeks prior Yet Bayern won again, 3-1 at home to Stuttgart the following weekend. It would be Hamburg's final points of the season. They would lose at home to Hertha Berlin 4-2. That in despite of Bayern dropping points at Kaiserslautern, it gift-wrapped the title to Bayern. They were never truly in any danger of Bayern dropping points, dropping the title here really. They wouldn't make it three in a row the following season as they would in the days of Gerd Müller or in the mid-80s or of the turn of the century with Elber. Cast and Yanko in the 2001 European Champions. And they'd even go two years without the title in 2011 and 2012, the first time that had happened since the 1994 95 season, 1995 and 96 season. To the same team, but those, of course, are stories for another day. The Lucha's memories of this season are Hamburg getting into the Champions League. So we have to continue this with Hamburg next. He remembers them getting into the Champions League. He also remembers them knocking Manchester City out of the old UEFA Cup and being at the Piccadilly Station in Manchester in the cold and rain, being the only non-German there on the platform. It was Werder Bremen's 6-0 thrashing of Köln which kept the heat onto Hamburg going into the final day. Bremen had a final day trip to Hamburg for the final match. A Bremen win would have Hamburg needing to qualify for the Champions League groups in August. Hamburg had one year of the Champions League since qualifying as holders in 1983, their only European Cup triumph when they beat Juventus. And that was a group stage exit in the 2000-2001 season. Hamburg would bow out similarly the following season. An away goals win over Osasuna in the qualifiers was followed by one win in six, meaning Bremen went to Hamburg, Miroslav Klose scoring the winner. Bremen were qualified as group in the group automatically whilst Hamburg had to qualify. A 3-2 win at home to CSKA Moscow after defeats home and away to Arsenal and Porto and a loss in the reverse in Moscow meant the Hamburg had half the points that they earned in 2000, but that 2000 team almost qualified. Results on the final day that time swung for them the wrong way. A draw against Deportivo whilst Panathinaikos beat Juventus. Bremen, on the other hand, their performance in the 2006-07 Champions League was that of the 2000 Hamburg team, bowing out narrowly in the Champions League in a 
very, very tough group. Wins home and away against Levski Sofia were pretty much a given. And if they'd have held out against Barcelona on the second match day with Lionel Messi inevitably equalising on the in the 89th minute, they would have qualified. A win at home to Chelsea took Verdes for fight to the last match day. They were level with Chelsea on 10 points, but Barcelona were to come in the new camp. Even though Barcelona had eight points, Werder Bremen weren't favourites by any means to qualify. Barcelona would, of course, the holders at the time. A point for Bremen would put them in the last 16, but Ronaldinho and Heidi Goodjonsson scored quite quickly early on in the first 18 minutes. Bremen haven't looked anywhere near the last 16 since. Hamburg, likewise. Let's go to the other end of the table now and the relegation fight in the Bundesliga. Mainz and Frankfurt, they only pulled away from safety in the penultimate game. Mainz claiming the 1-0 scalp of Schalke, whilst Frankfurt got a similar scalp in Dortmund away from home. A point there. Kaiserslautern that same weekend gained the scraps of a point at home to Bayern, and it might not have been enough, but for Stuttgart claiming a win at home to Wolfsburg, Köln, meanwhile, they were put to the sod in the aforementioned 6-0 loss in Bremen. They were down, joining Duisburg, who had an absolute miserable season, winning five games in the entire season. It left a basement battle akin to West Ham against Sheffield United, really. Wolfsburg hosted Kaiserslautern. 34 points, Wolfsburg played 33 points, Kaiserslautern. Hamid Altin top put Kaiserslautern into the lead. They led beyond the hour beyond the half-time break until a quick Wolfsburg double pulled them safe, Kaiserslautern needing two goals to survive. Kaiserslautern, a team embroiled in recent history, a team that had won the Pokal in 1990, they'd followed that up with the Bundesliga in 1991, a team that had won the 1996 Pokal despite being relegated Wigan Athletic-esque, and a team that had bounced straight back from Bundesliga's Zwei to stun the Bundesliga, winning it in 1998. A team that had, of course, got to the quarterfinals of the Champions League, only to be defeated by German friends Bayern Munich. Kaiserslautern wouldn't win another trophy, but they'd be comfortable in the top eight. But the slide was 14th, they finished 15th and 12th in 2005. And finally, despite an equaliser, an equaliser in a town built by Volkswagen, in a town built by the evil corporation, the team that was hardly a fairy tale. Wolfsburg, they would get to a Pokal final in 1995. They would lose to Gladbach before promotion in 1997, finally to the Bundesliga. They'd even play in the UEFA Cup in 1999, bowing out to Atletico. They'd have one, they wouldn't have one, but two, but three, or even four stabs at the Intertoto Cup, but five, losing three semi-finals and one final. Wolfsburg would hire Felix Magat and the legendary manager, won them a Bundesliga, getting them back into Europe. Wolfsburg was the stories of a Leipzig or a Hoffenheim before they even happened. A club in the hands of a corporation against the against the sort of grain of a 50 plus 1 rule that is prevalent in Germany. They climbed to the very top at home and almost continentally getting to, the, getting to a Champions League quarterfinal. They'd win the Pokal, they'd win the Bundesliga and Leipzig might have a a semi-final in the Champions League, one further than Wolfsburg and Hoffenheimer stint in the tournament too, but neither, even to this day, have been as successful as Wolfsburg in that evil corporate rise to the very, very top. After this short break, we'll round things off, as we often do here on the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast with the 2000s Trivial Teaser. 
welcome back. Last week's answer was got correctly by one person, and that was, of course, Rivi Latviera. Jake Collinson said an Elka, but our player was, of course, a central midfielder, so it couldn't have been an Elka, unfortunately, so sorry there, Jake. Our player was a central midfielder. He was managed by Tony Pulis and Rafa Benitez. He'd played alongside Thierry Henry, Fabian Bartes, Costinha, Mami Biram Juf, and Robert Hoof. It was, of course, as Rivi says, Salif Jow. So congratulations, Rivi. Today, we're going a bit further back. We're going to a fullback. A fullback who has been managed by Lars Lagerback and Steve Bruce. He's played alongside Mido, Melchior, Victor Moses, Olof Melberg, and Zlatan. He's played alongside Mido, Melchior, Moses, Melberg, and Zlatan. He's been managed by Lars Lagerback, Steve Bruce, a fullback. Almost looks like a journeyman fullback. Mido, Melchior, Moses, Melberg, Zlatan. Lagerback, Bruce. If you think you know the answer to that tricky teaser this week, let me know on Twitter at whatif underscore YouTube. Shout at me in the streets. And it will be Twitter and the streets where I'll be residing until this time next week, where next week, episode 37, we will be bringing you Saul Campbell's transfer to Arsenal and the whole saga behind that, his time at Arsenal. We'll be looking at the Leon squad, the great Leon squad of 2000s, Janinho. What a player he was. We'll be going to La Liga for the table never lies in the 2005-06 season. And on YouTube, we'll be looking at the 2003-04 Premier League season. We'll be looking at the 1970s. We'll have Bale, Deschamps, Lineker, Beckham, Keegan, FIFA manager. But for all your podcasty goodness, keep it on Acast, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your your podcast, your football podcast will be right there with you. Just search What If Football. Get it up, follow, subscribe, do whatever you need to do. Give us that lovely, lovely five-star review that we crave to uh, to boost up the audience numbers, get us uh, get us some more content flowing for you for you guys and uh, some more podcasts down the line somewhere around the Euros. We've got a big summer planned and I hope you're, you'll be along with us for the ride and... Until then, until next week, we'll be on episode 37 of the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. See you there. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.